My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. If you're a fan of guitar-driven indie rock, you're probably most familiar with our guest today, Glenn Mercer, from his work with the Feelies. We definitely talk about the Feelies on this episode of Transmissions, but uh, we're also talking about the diverse catalog he has of work outside of that group, including the Tripes, whose 40th anniversary edition of Music for Neighbors was reissued earlier this year. Along the way, we also discuss his solo albums, uh, The Velvet Underground, The Grateful Dead, Peter Buck of R.E.M., his tributes to works by David Bowie, Brian Eno, Roxy Music, Mark Bolin, and a lot more. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode of Transmissions. Stay tuned. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us today on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. How are you? How are you doing today? What What's new? What are you up to today? Well, today I'm talking to you. Great. Gratefully, <laughs> I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I just got back from a, a quick trip to L.A. where I was doing some some projects. So I'm a little bit um. You know, it's been a while since I've kind of traveled much, uh, but it was nice. It was a good, a good, fruitful excursion out there. I'm in Arizona right now, so. Oh, glad to hear. Didn't go too far. But uh, I'm thrilled to be hanging out with you on a Saturday talking about uh, so much uh, incredible music that you have been a part of over the, the decades. Um, earlier this year... Uh, a 40th anniversary of gosh i meant to ask you before we even started recording i want to make sure i'm pronouncing it right it's the band is the tripes right yeah okay tripes music for neighbors uh was reissued earlier this year after a i guess it it was reissued in 2012 and now a new edition of it but um i've really really enjoyed listening to this record uh i wasn't as familiar with this project as I was some of the other stuff you've been a part of, but it's really, really cool. It's really cool tunes. What, what kind of place does does the Tripes and this era hold in in your heart as a, as a as a longtime music maker? What do you, when you listen to this one? What do you what do you hear and what does it bring to mind for you? Uh, well, a whole host of memories and feelings. It really evolved over the course of a few years. And back then, a few years seemed like a lifetime. Sure, sure. So uh, I guess when we started, it was at a period where the feelies were kind of on hiatus. Yeah. And uh, I had heard about this local band. And um, I, I don't remember if they played or had a demo 
but I really liked it. And Bill and I offered to make a more proper demo. We had a four track recorder. So uh, they didn't have a drummer. I kind of sat in, played some percussion. And then um, I offered to join the band as a drummer. So, uh, and then from there it kind of evolved. I guess my, I was using my sister's drums. She came back from college so I didn't have the drums. And, uh, <laughs> also, during that time, we would switch instruments a lot. The singer would play drums, and Mark would go to acoustic guitar. I'd play electric. So it was constantly, sometimes John might play drums, or, you know, really, and I'd play the keyboard. It would really vary a lot. So uh, each version of the band was pretty comfortable to um, shift gears and, and kind of go with the flow because we had kind of set up i guess the band's parameters of always uh having that experimental edge to it sure so sure. Uh, when i moved to guitar dave came in on drums and then at some point brenda joined and she was singing and tony was singing more so uh the singer was kind of I guess not sing like, you know, a huge career in this anyway. So sure. he left, he left and then, um, Stan joined. Uh, I, he might've joined before Brenda. I don't know. It's a little bit fuzzy in my mind. Yeah. And then the bill who was doing our sound, he played percussion from the soundboard, but then he became percussionist on stage as well. So it's really different versions of the band. Each one kind of evokes a different memory. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds it sounds almost like you know, as opposed to a, a we're a we're a we're a band, and this is the lineup, and this is how uh, this is what you play, this is what I play. It sounds like it was a little bit more of like an evolving collective or a a shifting, ever shifting kind of project where that was kind of yeah, baked. Well, it, it was more, I guess, uh, like a social group, really. Yeah. Like, we get together uh, originally Sunday afternoons and just spend all day, like, we'd play and then we'd kind of take a break and just hang out and people would, you know, come and go and it's a real loose atmosphere. And we weren't really that concerned with playing live. Yeah. That happened occasionally, though, right? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. I guess it coincided with uh, us discovering uh, this bar in Hoboken called Maxwell's. Mm -hmm. so we started to hang out there and uh, started to play there more often and then just became uh, that group, social group just became bigger and bigger, really. The, you mentioned that the feelies were more or less on ice at this time, sort of hiatus, or maybe did you consider the feelies broken up at this point? No, I don't think so. No, I think really that, that was until Anton left, and Anton was still in the band when the tripe started. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the feelies weren't certainly weren't active. So, uh, coming from the feelies into the tripes, like. What was the comparison like? What did the, was was the feel pretty different? Yeah, it was. Um, but then again, the feelies evolved from various 
uh, lineups and yeah, which version would be different, really. I think typically when a band starts, it's sort of uh, more of a social thing. You know, hanging with your friends and making music. Right. And then at some point, it becomes more serious and involves, uh, you know, the business side comes into it. Sure, sure. Which changes things and more causes them to morph in further ways. Yeah. In the in the liners of the the reissue, you cite the band and traffic and Jefferson Airplane as inspirations. And and though the tribes don't sound like those groups per se, uh, I wonder if you could give me a sense of like, would those have been considered fashionable influences at the time, or were those sort of more a little bit more uh, deep head kind of like reference points or even anachronistic at the time? What, what what was that sort of like era of, of 60s rock? What standing did it hold in the overall indie rock or punk world? I think quite a bit. I mean, all music's connected. Um, you know, hearing the Beatles initially, they would be playing little richard and chuck berry songs and yeah uh, it's all linked together in, in various ways and um i th i think what i might have been referring to was sort of their uh those three bands in particular had that like sense of community or communal aspects to them yeah in my um and also, um, you know, the folk rock element more, more, you know, more pronounced, yeah. Pounding away, and this was like not that. Right, it was right. Gentler, uh, more uh, quiet, introspective kind of sound. How, how about a group like the Grateful Dead? Did they hold a place in your musical worldview? A little bit, yeah. I think I think about but that. They're not like jamming. We we really we didn't jam, so R right. It's interesting, right? Because there's like a looseness and a, like a a spontaneous quality to this stuff. But yeah, you're not doing you're not doing jams. You're not you're not even though there's this collective element and the sort of like everybody trading instruments and uh, there's a looseness to the format. But yeah, the songs stay. You know, kind of like I, I love those the influence of you know there there are two George Harrison Beatles songs on the on the uh, the the collection Love You Too and The Inner Light and it's it's a clear like lean towards combining those sort of like drone and 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 raga concepts which I think you hear uh, with the Beatles obviously but also with the Velvet Underground who are a huge influence so I, I feel like you your work so much of your work really sort of um positions those things alongside each other in a way that really shows like you had mentioned that all music is connected you really get a sense of that connection going through your discography i feel like oh thanks yeah you you talk yeah, oh go ahead sorry to, uh, it's not like a real conscious effort to pursue a particular kind of music it's more what turns you on and collectively you're able to uh find common ground with yeah you wrote in the liners that you 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 guys kind of wanted to find a middle ground between like the new york city velvet underground feel and the more 
softer West Coast vibe too. And it's interesting how much of your work exists in that zone. Um, I lis- I went back and listened to Wheels in Motion, your solo album from, I think it's 2007. Is that right? Uh, it sounds about right. Yeah, which means it's it's celebrating uh, like its fifteenth fifteenth anniversary, or, or which is which is wild. Um, that's a great listen, and it also I feel like has sort of that softer West Coast thing. Was was that some of the first music that you were interested in as like a young kid? Uh, the 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 sort of Beatles Beatles side of things. Um. Well, yeah, initially, pretty much the Beatles, and um, from there, the whole British invasion, then West Coast bands, you know, what everybody liked, really. Sure. Popular. Yeah. Well, we, Wheels in Motion was, it's it's a great listen, and, you know, I, I, I love that listening through all of the different side projects and all of the different different feelies and feelies related sort of things like yeah there's a real sense of that like that tunefulness comes through you know all 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 the way through i want to pop back to talking a little bit about the feelies something i'm struck about struck by is that early on you and your bandmates insisted on a very um in, intense level of creative control. You didn't want to work with outside producers. You wanted to have, you know, a con- control of the artwork. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about where that that confidence and sense of direction came from. Uh, for a band that early in its career, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. Where do you think that was coming from, or what was driving that that desire to be, you know, really make the make the calls as as a group? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem that unusual for me to think that any artist who creates something uh, that they, <clears throat> excuse me, put a lot of effort into. And I, I guess also that we didn't write a lot of songs. So the songs we wrote were very precious to us. And yeah. uh, you want to, you want to show them in their best light. Um and we felt we we knew what was best, and I guess we just had the guts or the stupidity to <laughs> not, care, not care, you know, if we were coming off as obstinate or uh, egotistical or, you know, rub some people the wrong way. I remember we had a big audition for... RCA records were interested and they basically said well we're getting impatient we want you to play right now or we're leaving we were like well we're not ready you know and they left and we kind of turned our backs on the deal just because we weren't ready to play we wanted to play and give it our best and to do that we needed to feel like we're confident and ready yeah uh, so you ended up working with with Stiff Records. Uh, were they? Was that a somewhat contentious relationship? Given that you wanted to have your this like level of artistic control, or were they more or less willing to to cede some of that ground f- for you for you guys? 
they they were willing. That was really why we went with them because they allowed us to do that. Um, I don't know if they changed their mind at some point. Uh, I think the fact that we had a co-producer probably helped a little bit. Yeah, it's that because so so is that like a suggestion on their on their end? Or did they feel like were you handing in? Were you turning in demos that you all had recorded yourselves? Because one thing again that goes all throughout the career is that you and your your collaborators, you know, you're always sort of in the producer chair, um, or at least the co-producer chair for for most of your stuff. Were were they suggesting bringing in other folks, or did they, you know, did they did they no, send? I think it was- I think it was our idea. Mm, interesting. Because uh, when you're performing, it's kind of... Well, nowadays, it's a little bit easier if you wanted to play from the control room. But back then, nobody ever did that. <laughs> yeah. We would be in the room, and then the sound would come out in the control room. We would have no idea what was going down until we listened to a playback. So just to kind of... Uh, get the process to move a little bit freer. We thought it'd be good if someone who shared our ideas for production and uh, knew what we were going for was there to, uh, you know, just another set of ears to give us a perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very helpful thing to have. And and you called in, who was it that you called in to do that co-production? That was like an associate of yours. Somebody had been working sound for you. Am I, am I remembering that right? Yeah, he had done a, he had done sound, live sound. Wait, and what's his what's his he, name? He I'm, at, I'm, he, I apologize. Uh, he, well, he was actually uh, he played a pretty pivotal role because he was doing sound at CBGB the night we auditioned, and he uh, came up and said how much he liked the band, and he was friends with Terry York, and he said, uh, I'm going to tell Terry to come and check you guys out. We okay. passed you out a job, and sure enough, Terry came, and Terry became our manager. And Through our connection with uh, Ork, it opened a lot of doors for us. Kind of let us take another step up th- the ladder. And that's Mark Abel, I believe, is, is if yeah. that's who we're talking about. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, the Orc Records. I love a couple. Uh, I say a couple years ago. It was longer longer ago than that. But Numero Group put out that great Orc Records box set, and it was so cool to hear to hear that era. But yeah, so that's that was a big that was a big step up. What what, what was the uh, you know what year are we talking when you're talking about auditioning at CBGBs or or about when? It was either seventy six or seventy seven. So not exactly like it wasn't like the place had was was there already a reputation going did you have a sense of like you know that being a place where you really wanted to play what was what was the auditioning process like or was it a comfortable thing for you all or or, or you know was it was it was it an easy vibe um pretty much there was a band that we were in prior to the feelies and we had played uh we started as a cover band and became an original band. And we had played some shows actually in Manhattan. So it wasn't that weird for us, I guess. Right. Uh, but Jibby Jeeves definitely had a reputation at that point. 
as like a play yeah due to groups like whatever patty smith group and uh television and and all those yeah i don't know what year that they had a live album come out that was probably around that time and also there was a huge story in the village voice about they their coverage of the summer rock festival at cbgb and i remember reading that and uh being pretty inspired by that just there are so many bands coming from so many places yeah yeah I, something that i'd read was that crazy rhythms which comes out a couple years later um I've read it described or read you in an interview describing it as sort of a reaction to what the punk scene had become. And in it, I think you can hear a certain kind of rejection of some punk tropes in terms of like, it's not overly distorted. It's not overly aggressive. It's still very frenetic and it's quick and it has a lot of energy, but it's not a not a you know, a punky record. Were you were you bored with what punk had sort of morphed into by a few years later you know after after we're talking about these initial interactions at cbgb i mean did you start to get a little bit turned off of of the maybe the sound of some of your peers at that point and wanted to go in a different direction or what what what, was there any real thought to it it was a little bit of that um you know we had been big fans of like the stooges and the mc5 so a lot of the bands they just seem to kind of be retreading this thing that had already happened and passed so sure sure so so obviously that record comes out and uh you know then after that there's there's a there's a break there's a break where the feelies are more or less uh you know on hiatus but you return uh a few years later with the good earth and I love I love Crazy Rhythms. Um, that's such an incredible record, one of my favorites. But some days I think I like the Good Earth even more, um, which is uh, really saying something because it's not often that a band drops, you know, an even better record as their second one. Um, what was the the sort of like the 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 metamorphosis like over those years, and and what do you hear in terms of growth i mean do you feel like you were a lot more settled and confident by the time you got around to making that second record or what what impression do you have of of the sort of um shift in in style not that it's it's still the work of the same band very clearly but with with new wrinkles um well so much time had evolved and um i remember feeling pretty soon after Crazy Rhythms came out, when it was time to write our next record, feeling that we had kind of exhausted that um, ground that we covered on that record. You know, all the songs were fairly fast or would at some point get fairly fast. It just felt like uh, in order to feel liberated enough to contribute whatever um in terms of the song you know not having those parameters it doesn't have to be fast it doesn't have to be minor chords or whatever you know 
heavy drums that, you know, you could kind of take it anywhere. Um, you know, writing songs is hard enough to put too many restrictions on it. It's, just makes your job even harder. Yeah. I think the first song after Crazy Rhythms was When Company Comes, mm. which was a total departure. And I think that was a result of uh, playing in the tripes and playing in the, the willies and um, just also the amount of time that passed playing with different musicians yeah. The willies are an interesting thing because I so what I read was that you know uh, allegedly it said that that you and and um that you and your your collaborator uh, Bill Million like that you that you were sitting on the floor I'm 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 quoting from Chad De Pasquale who wrote about um some some of this for Aquarium Drunkard but he talked about how you you would play in the dark and sit in chairs or lay flat on the floor is, is that right no we never did that we did sit in chairs and it was kind of dark it wasn't with the lights off i think we had some uh tables with lamps on them you know more kind of like living roomish yeah um well the idea was i guess to play uh you know, a lot had been written about the Feelys image and we wanted to just like kind of put that aside and um, have no image and just barely be seen. Yeah, you described it as something like an anti-rock experience, I believe, um, which I find really interesting because there's elements of the good earth that also carry carry a little bit of that. Not that it's not a rock record, you know, but there's a little bit less in terms of rock signifiers. So it really seems like that time between the records gave you a lot of... Also, I, I falsely stated that, I, that his piece said that you guys were laying on the floor. Uh, it's That's not, not the case. <laughs> I didn't mean to misquote him. But yeah, I think that's such a cool thing. And it's interesting that the, you know, like the look of a, of a band, the, the Crazy Rhythms has a very distinct record cover, you know? So it's like the image it was sort of established. So I'm, I, it's interesting that you would find yourself sort of wanting to withdraw from that and that both the tripes and the willies gave you these opportunities to sort of like explore these corollary paths, these side, these side sort of steps. And that by the time that the feelies get back in the, in the groove, um, it definitely carries the, it, it, it bears the marks of those, of those, uh, those years which is a really cool thing it, it's 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 cool to hear, think, hear the progression i think one thing um that i'd like to point out is like we never really felt comfortable uh you know as performers like here we are uh, look at us you know just not natural in that sense uh so in a way i think we did crazy rhythms and kind of played up the image because we felt we needed to to kind of stand out there's so much going on, so many bands, and that's one thing that I picked up on from that CBGB Summer Festival, that each band had their own unique thing to offer. So we really wanted to, you know, because we had been playing a few years and doing okay, but weren't getting any offers for make records or anything. So I think a lot of it was uh, a, a definite effort on our part to 
try to establish some kind of an image and, you know, just to uh, draw attention to ourselves. And then after that, we were like, well, we're not really comfortable drawing attention. So we'll be more like we really are. Yeah. I mean, because we're talking about an age where it's like the, a band's image, a, a band's image is all, all through the 70s, band's images and looks were important, obviously. But as we get into this era, the, the 80s, I mean, it's abs- it becomes absolutely imperative with the rise of, you know, MTV and visuals and, and sort of like, so it's like the looks become even more important. And it's interesting that faced with that, you know, what was it about it that made you that made you all feel uncomfortable? If you can you put your finger on it? Or is it a, a mix of things? I just think it's kind of the kind of people we are. Sure. Yeah, yeah basically shy and i i think we also use that to our advantage people could tell that we were uncomfortable on stage and that added a certain tension to the whole performance and kind of became a uh you know we took our flaw and turned it into something that you know like a strength yeah that's awesome. That's am- that's amazing when that can happen. It's it feels rare, but it is a good you know to turn a say a weakness, a quote unquote weakness, into a strength like that. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I mean, we talked a little bit about that reluctance to work with outside producers, but on The Good Earth, you worked with uh, Peter Buck of R.E.M. Um, What made you more open to working with him after that original reluctance to team up with other producers? Was there something about his vibe? Did you you know, what was it that that made you feel more open to that? Uh, Well, we liked R.E.M. We heard a certain similarity in in sound. Yeah. Um, production like the production on their record you know he offered to help he said i I heard you guys are working on new stuff and when you're ready to record i'd love to help you out uh our label at the time coyote records they recommended it so it just seemed like a good fit all around and and you stayed on coyote event so the next couple records come out on a and m right so was was the good earth how did the Good Earth lead to that A and M deal? And it was a did Coyote, you know, did they buy you out uh, of your your Coyote deal, or did A and M team up with Coyote? Well, How did that work out? Coyote struck a deal with A and M. Yeah. So uh, 
we I guess we're still technically on Coyote, and I'm not sure exactly how the deal was worked out, but it was still through uh, Coyote Records. Were you nervous at all about signing to a major or, or being involved in a major label, or did that feel like a like a moment of validation? You know that you were going to have better distribution and more resources and things like that. It was both, it was both of those. Mm. It was a little, little bit uh, reluctant, but then again, A and M weren't really. They didn't seem like a major label. Sure, they called they called it the boutique label. I guess they were known for like the way they respected the artists, and we found that was pretty much the case. I guess the big problem came when uh, all the people we had established a relationship with left the company, and all new people came in, kind of had to build relationship from start. Is isn't that always the way it goes? How many times I've you know you hear about bands signing to a label and they've got these champions or boosters or people at that label who really give a shit about them you know and then then they get fired or they move on to another job or whatever else and then you're just left with these people who are maybe don't even know what to do with you but it seems like i mean i i went back and watched the letterman performance from 1991 and i thought how cool it was to see you guys on a stage like that you know and i gotta say like I don't pick up on as much of the discomfort that you're talking about, at least not in that performance. You all seemed like you were pretty like in the in the zone. Do you remember much about that performance specifically? Uh, yeah, it was pretty comfortable. We went in the afternoon, did like a sound check. They, Paul and the band were very cool. They invited us back to the control room and played us the recording and yeah. asked anything we didn't like anything we wanted to change and they're uh, just real supportive and then prior to the actual uh performance they said uh you want to play with us going through the commercial so uh we said yeah sure and we came up with uh somebody's idea was to do paint it black so we played that and then went into doing it again so it was really we had warmed up and yeah that point we felt pretty comfortable about it that's a cool that's such a cool situation and to play with that band to you know covers have been a huge part of of the feelies and and, and so it's cool that there you were able to sort of honor that side of it on a national television show did that i mean did, did was there was there a big uptick in interest in the group at following that performance those were the days when a, a late night performance really could i mean i still can you know we thought and then really it didn't seem like it did anything hmm. so it was so very frustrating and uh shortly after that we broke up yeah. not because of that, but it was just indicative of uh well i, I think we we kind of wanted to go with a and m and all the bands that we considered i guess our peers that played on the same kind of circuit they were all going to major labels and i think generally overall it was very optimistic but then shortly after that those bands all broke up too so i think yeah. it was just um maybe the major labels had a little bit they were expecting a little bit too much of the performance of the band or just didn't seem like a good fit yeah yeah 
obviously, you know, that's the end of the feelies for a while, but you, you came back in, you know, the 2000s and have continued to make incredible records. But um, it definitely seems to me that, like, when you look at the career of the feelies, it's, you know, don't I don't want to use a term like anti-career or whatever, but it, it seems to me like early on that, that impulse to do things your own way and on your own timetable, you know, is like baked into the, the DNA of the group. So I like that you do things when you want to do them, you know, uh, have the feelings yeah. been, have the feelings been, like, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. More like slow and steady. Sure. Yeah. And you know, you'd burn out if you put too much into too short a period of time. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen that happen with lots of your friends' bands over the years, right? Where it's like, eventually you just torch you torch yourself trying to to push it too hard. It's a tough uh, business to be in. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about another of your solo record. Uh, 2015's Incidental Hum is a collection of instrumentals, and uh, it's ne- it's such a good record. That album, uh, your cover of Here Come the Warm Jets, Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets, is just next level. Um, do you remember the first time you heard that song and, and what it felt like? Uh, I remember hearing it pretty early on, but I don't necessarily remember the first time. And... Sure. I only asked because I remember the first time I heard Here Come the Warm Jets, and it's like it struck me like a bolt of lightning for whatever reason. It was just, you know, a perfect mix of like this sort of like rock energy with like a really incredible melody and a really incredible strangeness. You know, nothing really sounds like that song, the way the drums come in. Your, but your version of it is, is is just really really beautiful, and that whole incidental hum record is 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 fantastic. I read you describe something like Wheels in Motion as a very low pressure, uh, you know, situation where you didn't have anybody like banging down your door saying like finish the record. Was incidental hum a pretty similar situation for you? Even more so. It was. Uh, I, I guess with Wheels in Motion, it was sort of getting recording equipment and realizing that I could record on my own and having the songs with incidental hum, it was sort of like, well, I have this equipment. I don't have any songs. Um, And then thinking back to the early days of the Willies where Bill and I would just turn the tape recorder on and improvise. And I thought, well, let me try that. And I did that. And one song came out pretty good and encouraged me to kind of take it to the next step and then listen back to the few things that i had done and and i thought why they really evoke certain atmosphere i could almost picture a place in my mind and then i thought well maybe i'll try that i'll think of a place and then try to come up with music that reflects that so i did something and then i found an old tape of uh a cassette tape of stuff I had done instrumental stuff earlier. So I kind of incorporated that as well. And then gradually, I guess I had enough kind of filled up a, a disc to um, enough to make a record. Yeah. 
it's a really killer record. I love so with a song like Twenty Nine Palms. I mean, were you picturing that that place in your mind's eye? Well, not all of them are that specific. Some I took the uh, title from a town, just because I like the, the the sound of the of that work. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. You one of the like a lot of people. I spent a lot of 2020 and parts of 2021, you know, at home uh, and watching a lot of movies. One of the movies I watched, I hadn't ever seen Susan Seidelman's Smithereens, and um, I really, really liked it. And I was really into the to the music that you and Bill had done uh, for that. Both it features a you know Feely song in the beginning, and then you also made music. W- was the process of scoring a movie? I mean. Was it similar to what you were doing with Incidental Hum? Did you feel like you were sort of connecting those two modes? Uh, well, I did think uh, in terms of, yeah, Incidental Hum being like a soundtrack to a movie in my mind. Right. Uh, although it was technically quite different because they really uh, weren't set in, you know, film. They weren't, they were just imagination so with smithereens it was looking at the film and uh and writing to that so you've got more of a a prompt yeah and then we we had like an early primitive uh reel-to-reel tape like vhs before it was uh in a cassette, it would be reel to reel, and it kind of ran at a different speed than the actual speed. So we had some little bit. She had a little bit of uh, suit, and uh, Seidelman had a little bit of problem with some of the uh, fitting the music in. So we had to go to New York and work with her to piece it all together. Was that a was that an interesting challenge? Did you have fun making that? I mean, it you haven't. You haven't done a, another soundtrack since, right? Uh, no, but we really haven't been asked. Sure. Did you like? But did you like the process of, of working w- with? It was. It was in the middle of the winter in Bill's basement that had no heat. Yeah. So doing these parts with like big heavy coats on, it was a little uncomfortable, but it was fun. It was rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. That I guess kind of led to uh, working with Jonathan Demi too. Uh, or actually, Jonathan, I think, recommended us to Susan. She had been uh, thinking of working with John Cale. He actually called once when we were working on it, and she didn't answer the phone. I think she had a hard time telling him that she didn't go with him. Oh, my gosh. As a huge, as a huge Velvets fan, how did that make you feel? Were you, was that intimidating at all? It was, yeah. We actually, Bill and I were, um, Jonathan had recommended or had suggested to us that we score, he did a teleplay uh, written by Kurt Vonnegut uh, called Who, Who Am I This Time? Starred Susan Sarandon and Christopher Walken. And we were like, uh, we don't know anything about scoring or whatever. And, you know, he invited us in, we watched it. And then he actually wound up using John Cale on that. So cosmically, it all balanced out. It all worked somehow. Yeah. Well, John John Cale had wanted the feelies for... He had a record label for a while. 
is that Z, was, is that Z uh, uh is it Z or or uh why am I forgetting the name of the his label? Uh Z that I think was a French label. Yeah. They were uh they were like kind of uh aligned. Gosh, why am I why am I blanking on it? I maybe not though. Well, I think he only maybe did one record, the Model Citizens, I think. Mm. But uh, we were kind of intimidated, and he, he had set up a meeting, and somehow I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, wasn't aware of it, and he called up and kind of, kind of uh, was mad. Yeah, meeting, and I, you know, I was like, I got John Cale yelling at me on the phone, like. Wow. It was wow. intense. Yeah, I can't imagine I can't imagine that. Did that affect the way you heard the Velvet Underground after that, or was it just like, nah, there's nothing that's gonna change the way I feel about the VU? No, I didn't. Yeah. I think maybe spy records is what we're dancing around. I could be wrong. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a fascinating time and 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 what an interesting what an interesting like run in, but yeah. So that was the you, you guys made that soundtrack, and it's I like I said, I think it's a really great movie, and it was a lot of fun to watch, um, and a pretty interesting protagonist in that. So you guys did did an incredible job. Something that I also wanted to ask you about was, I guess in two thousand nineteen, you started doing some. Uh, uh, can you tell me a little bit about Hazy Cosmic Jive, which was like a tribute you started doing to? Really, the music of like a lot of like art rockers from the seventies, right? Eno, Roxy Music, yeah. David that, Bowie. Yeah, that has a really interesting uh, genesis too. Um, I had done a benefit show for a New Jersey arts magazine, and Richard Barone and Jim Mastro from the Bongos played that show as well, and we kind of reconnected. And the following weekend, the Feelies were playing a Velvet Underground tribute show. So I invited them to that, and they both came up with different songs to play on that. And then the curator, and, and that whole thing really was uh, because the exhibit, French exhibit, had come to New York. And they had approached the Feelies. They wanted to get all bands that were influenced by the Velvet Underground to perform. But what happened was there was a delay and then bringing the exhibit over. And in the meantime, they lost the lease and had to uh, have the exhibit at a different location. It didn't incorporate a stage or a performance area. So we couldn't do that. So we kind of had our own tribute in connection. It was connected, but it wasn't as part of the exhibit. And then the curator saw Richard and I, Richard and I perform a show together or I sat in with him. It was a tribute to New York Greenwich Village. So he suggested we do a set as a duo at the exhibit because it was a small room. We could kind of, you know, it wouldn't have been good for the feelies, but as a duo thing. So we agreed to do that and uh, we had... Dave played drums, so it was a trio, and um, 
the idea was we would do since I had just played the Velvet Show, I didn't want to do any of those songs. And I thought, well, we could do some Lou Reed solo. And Richard, I think, suggested, well, why don't we do some some Velvet, some Lou Reed, and then we'll do some stuff that were bands influenced by the Velvet Underground. So we did some Eno at that. And then gradually we kind of thought, well, there's actually an interesting connection because um, Lou Reed played with Bowie. Eno did work with Bowie. Eno was in Roxy Music. You know, they were all kind of at the same period, but also they had like a real strong connection to each other. And like um, the idea of them all being influenced by the Velvet Underground, like Eno had that quote saying that the first Velvet's record didn't sell a ton of records, but everybody who heard it bands. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. David Bowie, the first uh, songs he played when he came on his first tour, he did Waiting for the Man and White Light, White Heat. So yeah. he was always, uh, you know, then later on when he connected with Lou on the Transformer record. So little by little, we... Uh, and then the Bongos had done T-Rex and Bowie and Bolin were good friends. So, you know, it was, it was all very closely related and also uh, for me, that's like really, uh, I had started as a bass player. So right at the period of transitioning from bass to guitar was around the time that all those records were coming out. So those guitarists were like a huge influence on me. Robert Fripp, Mick Ralphs, uh, Mick Ronson. Yeah, I was going to say Ronson. Thunders and Nolan and uh, Sylvain. Yeah. You know, so in a way it's like nostalgic because Dave and I actually, the band that was uh, around before the Feelies that Bill eventually joined, we had started as a cover band and we did a lot of those songs. So it's real nostalgic for me uh, to be playing with Dave back on the drums, doing a lot of those songs. And it's also like a good way to pay tribute to uh, bands that were very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we met, we mentioned your, your, an interaction with John Cale. Um, you did you you i you know did you ever play you played with lou reed or shared a stage at one point or another right how did that how did that come together that was from we were invited to perform at a radio station long island for their christmas party and as a way of enticing us to perform they said oh there's going to be a lot of cool people there Joan Jett's coming, Lou Reed's coming. And I think as a joke, Bill said, well, if Lou comes up and plays with us, we'll do it. <coughs> Excuse me. And they thought it was a great idea and they ran it by him. And he had been familiar with the band. We had, that was around the time of Only Life when we had recorded What Goes On. Right. So he, he had heard that and liked it and he agreed to come and play with us. So I think we were going to do one or two songs. It went over so well. Backstage, we just said, uh, yeah, what else can we do? And we went back and did a few more. 
And then he was going on tour to promote the New York album. And he invited us to be the opening band. And a few times, or one time, he uh, came out and played with us. Was, yeah, was that, I mean, that must have been mind-blowing. Kind of. Kind of? Not, not yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that once once you're playing with somebody, it's a very different thing, right? Because it's not like you're, you can't hero worship when you're on stage with somebody because you have to be a collaborator with them. So yeah, maybe, maybe, is that the more, is that more the way it felt? Yeah, I don't remember a moment where I felt um, distracted or anything. I think the the biggest distraction was initially he didn't want to sing. <laughs> he just wanted so to play, play guitar? Yeah, I, and I was singing and felt like really ridiculous. Here I am, <laughs> and he's standing over my shoulder. So I kept nodding, you know, urging him to come up, and finally he did and took over on the mic, and I was sure glad about that. I went back and recently kind of watched a, a live set. There's a, there's a film... Uh, of a, of a concert with him and Quine and uh, and uh, I'm kind of spacing or uh, Fernando Saunders on bass, you know that that kind of uh, near that era that we're talking about, and uh, I was just it's nuts how as a guitarist he was just on another plane and in, in that era especially you know he's like very very so it's interesting that he was drawn to maybe just want to play guitar, but I'm glad that he you were able to coax him up to the microphone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, so as I alluded earlier, the the Feelys have continued to make great records. Um, is there are are you all working on anything right now? Is there anything in the in in the works, or uh, what have the last couple of years looked like on on the Feelys front for you? Um, well, we we didn't do anything during the excuse me <coughs> during the shutdown. Yeah, uh, we had some songs before then from around a little bit after the In Between record came out, but uh, we recently started playing again. We really haven't uh, moved too much toward another record. Yeah, how's it kind felt? Of, trying to pick up the pieces, really. Has it felt good? Has it felt good to be back? I mean, considering the the long lifespan of the of the project and of the band and all of its different incarnations, I imagine that it probably does it feel pretty good when you get the the that crew back together. I mean, initially it was a little difficult because first couple of shows, uh, most of the people were wearing masks. Right. But uh, now less of that, so you get to see the smiles on people's faces. Yeah, that must feel fantastic. Well, I hope I'll be able to catch one of those shows soon. And and Glenn, I really appreciate you taking the time to to walk me through all of this and tell me some of these stories. And I dig the music so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today here on Transmissions. Well, thank you for inviting me.
Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I know we've got a lot of competition for your ears on the internet. We're so honored that you spend your time listening to our program today. I know I say it often, uh, but I do mean it. It means so much to us that there are so many people who support this podcast and post about it and uh, email us to let us know uh, what they like about it. it. It means a lot to us, and I want to thank all of those of you who do that. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Visual design is by Daryl Norrison. Our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. Please leave us a rating, uh, review the show, subscribe, whatever you can do to spread the word. If you dig Transmissions, we appreciate it. We are a part of the Talk House Podcast Network. And next week on the show, I'm really psyched to talk about one of my favorite albums of the year. It's called Reset with Panda Bear and Sonic Boom, uh, known, of course, for their work with Animal Collective and uh, Spaceman 3. It's a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed catching up with those guys. So come back uh, next week for that one and uh, take care of yourself. Until then, this transmission is concluded. (laughs) 